So turning to Mark 4, starting at verse 26, reading through verse 34. Two tiny parables tucked into the Gospel of Mark. Jesus also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, Jesus said, what, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. And yet when planted, it grows, becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord for us this evening. Thanks be to God. These two parables don't seem like much. It, if we were to actually expand and see the context of the Gospel of Mark, these two tiny parables get stuck in between the parable of the sower, the far more well-known parable with sowing and soil and all of that, and then this action-packed story of Jesus calming the storm. And these two tiny parables. And they often get overlooked for their bigger partners in the context of the Gospel of Mark except maybe in a Sunday school class or a children's story. We tell children the stories of lost sons, straying sheep in fancy dinners, and found pearls. Parables become an object lesson of faith when we give them to children. We kind of get creative with how we present them, and we assume that because of their creativity, they are easy to digest. Except, of course, for any of us who've wrestled with parables, they are anything but easy to digest. When studying this passage, these two tiny parables, I discovered that commentators and scholars can't quite put their meaning, their finger on the meaning of these two tiny parables. Because if one scholar thinks that he has the exact right interpretation, there is another scholar on the other side who absolutely thinks that person's wrong and she has the right interpretation. And they both claim it confidently. But how can something like a parable, quite simple, be so confusing? And why do we hand over to children parables that even scholars can't fully explain? 
And I wonder if it's because us adults, especially adults who are systematic theologians and biblical scholars, we get tangled up in detail and abstraction. And kids just like to hear a good story. A shepherd lost a sheep. A woman finds a toonie. A wealthy man invites the entire city over for a fancy dinner. A dad hugs his son, who he thought was lost. A farmer in overalls does what a farmer does and throws seed on the ground. And a little seed turns into something big. Parables are not theological nuts that we need to crack open to extract the one meaning. Jesus did not preach lectures on doctrine or dogma. He preached in stories and metaphor, in meaningful comparisons with what was for his original audience just everyday normal things. And he made them come to life, just pregnant with meaning. And maybe we need to become kids again with our imaginations, with our minds a little bit more open to brush the churchy dust off these parables talking about the kingdom of God and all that we assume that they mean and hear them fresh. As one parable tells it, we need to have an imagination that allows us to hear that it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for Mercedes to fit through a revolving door. In order to hear anew the question that Jesus asks, that every parable answers, that he asks, surrounded by a crowd of disciples, surrounded by groupies and curious folk and religious leaders who wish him dead, and he asks them, what is the kingdom of God like? What in the world can we compare it to? Whenever, whenever I imagine Jesus asking that question, we just kind of plunk right into whatever parable he's going to teach after that. But I wonder if he pauses to allow the disciples, to allow the crowds to fill in their answer, to wrestle with what they think the kingdom of God is like first. Like a good teacher, he makes his students think for themselves just a little bit. Because the disciples here in Mark, they, they already have a good sense of what the kingdom of God is like. The disciples get goosebumps when Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God coming. Because the kingdom of God for them, as we all know, they thought of the nation of Israel rising up in revolution against Rome. The kingdom of God meant the Messiah leading them on a march through the streets of Jerusalem, sword in hand, taking back their land, and throwing down the pagan Roman Empire, defeating their enemies, being the victors. The kingdom of God meant power and glory and sword and war and revolt and liberation. All the disciples had to do, they thought, was just bide their time and Jesus would rise up and lead them to victory and they could almost taste it. 
what is the kingdom of God like? And then there's the crowd. So there's always a close group of disciples, and there's always a crowd listening to Jesus' teachings. And what brings them to Jesus is as varied as each person who gathers there. Maybe they expected more healings, maybe more exorcisms. Those were always kind of fun. More astounding miracles. Maybe all they wanted as they followed this rabbi around was just for an entertaining show because he usually delivered. They just wanted their curiosity satisfied. They wanted to show something to tell their friends back at the village pub later that evening. What does the kingdom of God look like? But Jesus gives them these two tiny parables. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A farmer in overalls scatters seed on the ground, and days pass, and he goes about his own business, sleeping, eating, working, day in and day out. And weeks pass until one day he looks out at the field, and a little shoot of green rises up from the black dirt, getting bigger and larger until he harvests the whole bunch of it. What's the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God? It's a seed. It's, it's like a seed. That is not <clears throat> about revolution and swords. That is certainly not an entertaining show. I'm a farmer's daughter. I've watched fields day in and day out. It's not super entertaining. And then Jesus scandalizes them even further. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed the smallest seed possible. And when it grows, it becomes the largest shrub in the garden. The kingdom of God is a seed. It's the smallest seed. It's not a Brazilian nut. It's not a peach pit. It's not an avocado pit. It is the proverbial mustard seed. And what does the kingdom of God become? A shrub the biggest shrub in the whole garden, but a shrub. No power, or glory, or magic tricks, or anything to make one gasp in astonishment, to be bowled over with amazement. All they got was a seed, the smallest seed, which grows into a shrub, not a sequoia, not a cedar, not even a simple, sturdy maple. Just a plain old garden variety shrub. And maybe we're not as scandalized by these two tiny parables as the disciples were or even the crowd that day. Because we've heard it often enough that all the surprise is taken out of it. Yeah, 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 the kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed. Uh-huh. I heard that one a lot. We've heard it a lot. It's covered in churchy dust, and we all think we know what it means. Just by familiarity. And I don't know if we get the surprise anymore, or the upset, 
or the upside down, upside down expectations. It can be kind of lost on us. So what crosses your mind during the pause after Jesus asks, what is the kingdom of God like? What's the kingdom of God like? Do our answers to that kind of sound a bit more like the disciples' thoughts? Kind of going big in glory and power? Victory? Or do we hope for a little entertainment like the crowd? Or do we carry a whole host of our own false expectations into these two tiny parables, formed and shaped by our own particular context and culture? our own obstacles that make it difficult for us to know what the kingdom of God is like. We have been conditioned, I'm going to put this out there, I think we have been conditioned to believe the mantra that bigger is indeed better. As a general rule of thumb, our culture kind of goes by bigger is better. And the powerful ones in our world, the Traders on Wall Street, the tech giants, the CEOs, presidents and leaders, celebrities and Instagram influencers, these are the ones who affect change. They are who can make a difference. They are the ones who matter and who we pay attention to. And church culture is not immune to that type of thinking. For many, for many members of churches, for many pastors, the successful church is the one with a stadium seating, with booming statistics, with quantitative growth that's off the charts, with a celebrity pastor, and a big budget, and a big parking lot to match. What is the kingdom of God like? Often, for us, it's the same as our society's definition of success. We can be just as driven by money and ambition, by status and numbers and quantity. Just look at who gets the airtime in Christian culture. Mega churches may be on the decline, but they still rule what we think of as a successful church. And we are still focused on making the church culturally relevant, culturally impressive, taking cues from big business and Starbucks models of how to do things. That's a vision of towering trees, not of garden shrubs. So what is the kingdom of God like? I think these two tiny parables, they, they function as a corrective lens to our failing vision of the kingdom of God.
for the disciples then, for the crowd, and for us. The first one tells us that growth of the kingdom is not up to us, period. The farmer scatters the seed. That's it. The growth, the green sprouts of life, are a mysterious process of soil and water and seed. The kingdom of God doesn't come through our own efforts. We do not will the seed to sprout, as any farmer can tell you. We are not given that responsibility, people of God, and we are not given that burden. Because no matter the strength of our programs, the size of our church, or how polished our worship is, or how put together our lives are on Sunday morning, or appear to be, unless the Spirit is at work in all of that, nothing is going to happen. The second parable helps us to see our kingdom efforts correctly. Small though they may be, they grow beyond our wildest expectations. It is not, thankfully, the success of the big, but the faithfulness of the small that ultimately matters in the kingdom of God. Our efforts may look insignificant now, in the face of the big needs of not even tackling our world, but just our city, our neighborhood, our street. But we can trust that God will turn that weakness, that smallness, into more than we can ever imagine. Because it's only when we grow deep that we can grow up. <laughs> what I love, especially, about the mustard bush is we think of it as something useful. It's a mustard seed, great. But it was actually a weedy pest. Once planted, it took off and it couldn't be contained. It didn't show up in well-tended gardens of Rome, but in the rocky countryside of Israel. It's kind of like Jesus is telling us the kingdom of God is less like a well-tended garden and more like the haphazard and wild golden blanket of dandelions that comes every spring. They take root everywhere and anywhere, especially when they're not wanted, and especially when they're not expected. In fields and gardens and front yards and back ones, in ditches and even somehow up through the cracks and sidewalk where nothing should grow. You see their golden heads growing up, where they're not wanted, expected. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is like that. Humble, weedy, unexpected and unwanted, finding its way up through the cracks of life where nothing should thrive or grow. Outside, often, the bounds of well-tended churches, everywhere, anywhere, where the Spirit moves. Back in my first year of university, a classmate and I had several conversations around Christianity, which were all kicked off by the fact that I had a notebook 
uh, with my favorite verse at the time that I was living with, Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I had it in Greek, which caught his attention. He wanted to know what it said. And I was at a big secular university, so I'm like, okay, I gotta tell you what it says. And it turned out he was curious and he was skeptical and he did not understand anything about why I would believe. He had left the church. He was smarter than someone who sat in the pews. He knew better. So we had many, <clears throat> many wonderful conversations. And one of our last major conversations, Chris asked me a question about faith and God. And I knew it was important to him. And he asked me, and I had no idea how to respond. I had no answer. And I felt that this was momentous. I felt that this was meaningful to him. And I just had to look at him and say, you know what, Chris, I don't know. I don't know. And our class ended and our conversations ended because we weren't particularly friends and being a big university, people just kind of disappear off into their next course across campus. And you don't really see each other. And so I walked away from that conversation feeling like an absolute failure. That if I had had the right answer, that if I had had somehow been able to speak into Chris's life at that moment, I would have been used by God to transform, to change his relationship to God, to faith, to church. Thanks be to God. No, I had no idea. And I had to fess up to that. Almost a year later, we ran into each other again. And he said hi. I wasn't sure if he wanted to say hello. And we connected. And he said, you know that conversation we had where you said, I don't know? That was the gift I needed to know that I didn't have to have everything put together to go back to church. That I didn't have to agree with everything that was said, that I could wrestle with it. And you saying, I don't know, allowed me to say that too. And then he said, so my wife and my little kid, we're, we're back at the, the Catholic church down the street. We've been going there for a little bit now. I walked away thinking I was a failure. Again, nothing that I did, literally nothing that I did. And the spirit was at work in his life in ways that I did not know or foresee or understand. You plant a seed. I didn't even know I was planting one. You just live faithfully. And God does so much more than we can ever think or imagine. The sower doesn't know how the seed grows. These two tiny parables clear away our assumptions about how the world, the kingdom, the church should work or look like. Whatever definition of success seeps in, and it helps us to see the small seeds of kingdom growth around us. Visiting sick and hurting people in the hospital. Bringing dinner to a family who may not have had a home-cooked meal in a while. Serving in the church, whether it's caring for our little ones in nursery 
a very thankless job, or it's holding office as an elder or deacon, sometimes also a thankless job. It can be sharing Jesus with someone in need, someone in need of meaning, someone in need of love. It can be mending a broken relationship that costs us something. It can be offering forgiveness even when we are very convinced that we are still absolutely in the right. It can be helping someone along their walk of faith or their walk of doubt. It can be cleaning up an apartment for a family who's coming to Canada. It can be planting a community garden and watching it grow. It can be praying for each other, for the world, for ourselves. And it can be learning to simply love just a teensy bit better than how we already do. In the faithfulness of the small, the tiniest seed, God works to bring about his kingdom. Through these parables, Jesus frees us from the burden or the expectation of bearing it all on our shoulders, of carrying it all ourselves. We, people of God, do not bring the kingdom. The Spirit does. And we are free to sow seeds, little though they may be, trusting and hoping and knowing that God takes care of the rest. And when we pray, your kingdom come, we pray in all confidence, in all hope, in all joy, that God will bring it about just as he promised. The seeds of the kingdom, little though they may be, grow. Thanks be to God. Amen. As a prayer of application, we're going to pray together. Turning in your bulletin, there's a prayer of application. As we, the people of God, look for seeds, planting them ourselves or having others plant them in our lives. So let us pray. Dear Jesus, the seeds of your kingdom have been planted, and we eagerly look for the harvest. Yet in our eagerness, we wait. With our eyes, may we watch for the smallest changes around us. With our ears, may we listen for your voice. With our minds, may we ponder your stories. With our lips, may we whisper your praises. With our hands, may we touch those in need. With our arms, may we hold up the weak. With our feet, may we walk in your ways. And with our hearts, may we adore you.